0: Thank Welcome to our
1: environmental seminar series. This is our next to last presentation. And this morning we have Dr. Kion Mallory from the philosophy department. Kion, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to come and and present this for us today. Uh, Unfortunately, they all know I have to have class this hour. I'll get back downstairs before I violate the five minute rule and nobody's left.
0: <laughs> so, I'll do that.
1: so Welcome, please enjoy the food, and, and thank you once again, Kyron. So have a great day.
0: Okay. I'm going to quickly try to get a website here. In my talk, I'm going to be drawing a little bit on some information and perspectives provided in this particular article that's online, so you can see it—not not all of it. I'm not just presenting these findings, but you know, it might be helpful to be able to read along, and you can write down the website. Um, so uh, it is an honor and a pleasure to be here, and uh, I recognize many faces, and it's really nice to um, get to see folks in get to see students in different contexts. As you know, I'm. Uh, professor of environmental philosophy and I teach environmental ethics and environmental justice and ecofeminism but um, as many of you also know my background is actually in environmental studies, environmental interdisciplinary, environmental science studies and policy so um, I love and it's absolutely crucial to, um, to really developing ethical responses to the kinds of environmental problems that we face that different kinds of communities discourse and knowledge communities that I'm gonna talk about today, um, talk with one another. So um, I, um, it, it's an, it's a privilege to be interacting with people in environmental science class and get, those, um, get that cross conversation. Um, okay, so um, what I'm gonna do is gonna be a little bit of a hybrid talk. I'm gonna be doing some reading and of uh, some things that I've written and then just uh, talking with you about some perspectives. Um, I'm gonna start out by, by holding up uh, this is this was my request for the uh, over the Elmo overhead projector because you could just put things in front of it. But I'll, I'll pass this around. This is you probably recognize it. It's a drink coaster, <laughs> and it says uh, Canada's response to global warming, and it's a Molson ad. Okay, right, and uh, Canadian Sub Zero, right. So it's funny. So I, so I guess the message here is that the response to global warming is to have a cold beer, right? If you're getting warm, have a cold beer. Um, But you have to ask ourselves, um, who's in a position to be able to kind of joke like this and to be able to have access to be able to say that, oh, well, this is how we can respond to global warming. We can just open ourselves a cold beer. We can engage in some sort of consumer activity. Now, it's interesting, of course, that it's a Canadian beer. So Canada, of course, and other Arctic regions being some of the areas of the world that are, as you know, are most impacted most rapidly by climate change. But not all Canadians are situated equally in terms of the effects of global warming on their uh, cl- and climate change on their particular kinds of environments. So um, so we can think about that, the commodification and the using for advertising purposes of something in a lighthearted way, of something very serious, climate change. And we can also think about, um, as I just said, um, who uh, is in a position, who that's targeted at, and who would it be in a position to, uh, you know, respond to climate change by having a cold beer. Um, so uh, the title of my talk is Who Knows Ethics and Epistemologies of Climate Change and Environmental Justice. Um, I'm gonna explain uh, some of those, those terms. Um, so recently I spoke at a symposium that was called Varieties of Environmental Justice. Um, and it was at the University of North Texas and uh, where I'm an alum of the um, program in environmental ethics and environmental philosophy. I guess I'll go ahead and have a seat here. Um, And so while I was there, I had the opportunity to listen to representatives of different Native American tribes, talking to the assembled audience of students, professors, community members, and environmental justice advocates about the importance of appreciating different ways of knowing and responding to environmental change in the struggle to devise sustainable and just solutions to the problems that we face. Oh, so one of those I heard was Dr. Dan Wildcat, and, um, and actually, I can actually pull up a picture of him. A couple blocks in here. I loved the name Wildcat, and I think we need to have him here. <laughs> um, oh, this does not look so good. This isn't what I was... Okay, well, it's not coming up so readily. So, um, so he has a homepage, and I was just going to pull it up for you. But he is a um, Dan Wildcat, Dr. Dan Wildcat. He's a UCHI member of the Muscogee Nation of Oklahoma, and he is also the director of the American Indian Studies Program at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas. <laughs> Dr. Wildcat spoke of the need for empirical lived knowledges of environments. Uh when deciding how to address a particular environmental issue, he said, and this is his quote: we need to visit with the people who live there who call these places home. Um, so Dr. Wildcat said that this is not simply a matter of inclusion demanded by justice, although it is that, but by listening to the people who have a lived relationship with the land, air, and water and other beings that inhabit a particular area it's that listening to them is crucial to be able to understand what is going on. So about climate change Dr. Wildcat had this to say okay for native peoples it's a deadly not an inconvenient (coughs) truth. And to substantiate his point he used the example of Inuit peoples not being able to rely anymore on traditional knowledges about determining whether or not the ice is safe to go on, Um, uh, whether to be able to rely on those knowledges, those knowledges now being unreliable. Intricate knowledges um, that developed in close relationship with a particular environment that go back as far as the language of the culture, so more than 8,000 years. Knowledges that have always, until right now, at this very historical moment, served to inform us when the ice is safe for traveling and hunting and moving on, and when it's not. So here's an example of an epistemological loss, a loss of a kind of knowledge, and a story of conditions shifting and changing so rapidly that no developed human system of knowledge can predict what's going on when the ice is going to move and crack. Um, So what kinds of knowledges do non-dominant cultures and groups have that will help us to understand what's going on? And what kinds of non-traditional frameworks for understanding and relating with the world can we draw upon to help us deal practically, sustainably, and ethically with climate change and other environmental exigencies. Epistemology, in the title of my talk, it's a philosophical term, I'm sure many of you are aware, that means knowledge or refers to ways of knowing or questions about what counts as knowing or having knowledge. Contained but not always visible in epistemological questions are questions of who the knowers are. uh, Whose knowledge or knowledge producing practices are legitimate and whose are not. Some kinds of philosophy, such as feminist philosophy and environmental justice theory, challenges certain pervasive assumptions about knowledge, uh, such as that true knowledge is always objective and that objectivity and thus knowledge can only occur under a condition of material or physical um, and emotional, affective or emotional separation between the knower and the known and from a stance of distance and separateness and removal. Uh, such philosophies and movements also challenge our ideas about who the experts are and challenge the idea that only objective, neutral, and dispassionate Western trained scientific experts can authoritatively speak to particular events, such as the ev- effects of climate change, or claim to have certainty about what's happening in the world. I'm going to send another clipping and kind a of moving around in okay. yeah. um, So in this talk today, I want to speak with you about the role that alternative ways of knowing, specifically but not exclusively, the kinds of knowledges held by women, people of color, and indigenous communities, as a result of their lived situatedness in particular kinds of social, political, and natural environments, um, the role that these non-traditional or non-standard kinds of knowing, uh, or non-standard kinds of epistemologies can and must play in addressing global change. So, in an NSF-funded study by uh, author uh, by authored by uh, geography Wendy Eisner, this is what's above you, uh, environmental ethicist Chris Cuomo, and geographer Kenneth Hinkel, uh, Heinel, excuse me, uh, titled "Environmental Change, Indigenous Knowledge, and Subsistence on Alaska's North Slope," the authors present preliminary findings of an interdisciplinary research project that links. And let's see. Here's a quote. Since this isn't highlighted, I'll see if you can find it. <laughs> um, that, links, that links the knowledge and experience of the Inupiat Eskimo elders, hunters, and berry harvesters with scientific uh, observations and methods to better understand environmental change on the Arctic coastal plain. So that's what this study does. So I know I don't need to convince you that uh, global climate change is having a particular impact on polar and Arctic regions. And while I could recount their empirical findings, you could just pull this study up, uh, it's available online. And I would also just be covering material uh, that you've heard firsthand uh, from other research experts that have presented in this very seminar series, I'm sure, including uh, Dr. Kelman Weeder and uh, Dr. Rodriguez and Dr. Granis and others. But I do want to share with you some of the ideas these researchers sought to convey in their report about the importance of local knowledges. Since it's kind of a lengthy quote, I'll see if I can find it. Okay, so in their words, <sighs> I think I might have, there might be a printer version that I was working from here. So, the
2: right. what's that? In the right,
0: and the blue. Uh huh. Yeah, let's try that. So I'm looking for something that says, I witness quotes on the ground. I witness observations. I saw that. Did you? Was it up further? further A little further down? Thanks. Ah, here we go. Okay. So not very pretty, but I'll try to scroll it up to the top. Okay, so we're right around here, so you can follow along with me. Okay. Um, I witness on-the-ground reports can be crucial for tracking and interpreting specific changes and effects or for assessing the relationships among various effects such as specific and as such specific details may not be accessible through scientific technologies and methods. As the literature on, on indigenous knowledge and northern climate change shows, native stakeholders' explanations of particular events, processes, and rates of change also provide important hypotheses for consideration because local understandings include awareness of historical or contextual factors unknown to researchers from the outside. Global climate change creates local and meta-level situations that are quite precarious, and situations where local and scientific communities need each other's help. It is therefore not surprising that, in the Arctic and elsewhere, there is a small but growing body of scientific work that incorporates local or indigenous knowledge and perspectives with hopes of improving scientific and ethical integrity of research by integrating important information obtained through direct observation and by prioritizing the needs and interests of local communities. And that last part gets to the ethical, some of the ethical implications of this. And I'm going to talk about a bit about that here at the end of today's talk. Um, So it seems like a no-brainer, right? Uh, uh, But historically, a no-brainer that you would want to consult with local communities, um, people who have a deep and lived knowledge um, of particular kind of places and lands when you're trying to discover, conduct your your scientific experiments and gather data to really know what's going on. But historically, many obstacles have stood in the way of having the direct first-hand accounts of residents of particular places impacted by environmental degradation count in our knowledge-gathering processes. Many environmental justice movements have stressed the importance of listening to and taking seriously, and all those of you who are in the environmental justice seminar, right? I mean, this is it sounds familiar. Um, uh, many environmental justice movements stress the importance of taking seriously the accounts of residents of particular areas that are being impacted by industrial pollution or something like that. But just as often, these communities have found their perspectives and their knowledges discounted, dismissed, Uh, and their calls for environmental justice delayed until experts could get in there and independently verify what the community knows to be true. Or just as often they're ignored and dismissed entirely as happened in the case relayed at the same conference that I recently attended by Judge uh, Luis Sepulveda of the West Dallas Coalition Against Environmental Justice. And uh, Judge Sepulveda told us a story of growing up in his predominantly uh, poor Latino community right next in West Dallas, and uh, right next to many uh, in, industrial um, sites as well, uh, including um, a, a major lead smelter for the entire region. And he told stories of as a child playing outside and um, and having lead ash from the smelter just like fall down upon him and his uh, his cousins and his brothers and sisters as they're playing outside and he said, "Look, Mama, it's it's raining it's, or no, it's snowing." And she's like, "No, this is Dallas, honey. I don't think so. No, but they were. It, it was lead ash that was literally raining down on them." Um, His nephew uh, suffers from intense nosebleeds as did many of his uh, companions, many of his friends and and relatives. There are lots of sicknesses. Um, There were asbestos and lead levels registering at 20,000 parts per million by the EPA's own accounting. So the EPA actually did go in there and measure. But they were told that they couldn't determine whether their ailments were caused by the toxins in the environment, by the lead. And mothers in particular, who tend to be the ones who are most active in environmental justice movements. Not just women, not just mothers, but women. Um, and some of the reason for this is that it's because women um, are socially assigned the role of caring for others. Uh, children and elders and members of the family and attend to the people who get sick and who know when people are faltering and know when something's wrong. So there's a kind of epistemology, right? There's a kind of knowledge. And talk to others in the community and find out that there are patterns, that there are that this is happening not just in my household, but in other households too. So, so even though the EPA registered these incredible lead and asbestos levels and a, and a whole concoction, cocktail of other um, of other chemicals, the the they were told by the officials. We first of all, we don't, we can't say for sure, and you can't say for sure that your illnesses are being caused by uh, by these uh, environmental contaminants. And besides if you would just stay home and bathe and take care of your children, you wouldn't be having any problem with your children. They wouldn't be sick. So They were they were told this. So they're, not only are their knowledges of what's going on and what's causing the sickness were, were being denied, but the communities themselves were being blamed for the problem. And I might add, despite the lack of evidence on the part of the government officials who were telling them that the real problem here is that you're not bathing your children well enough. Um, so... Um, I could go on with other stories and if time permits I will. I, I recently attended yet another environmental justice um, conference um, and th- that's really the most striking thing is hearing how the people are working in their particular um, communities. Um, I heard from an a activist in the uh, mountaintop removal movement in Kentucky um, and, uh, and of a, a community, uh, an African American community in Georgia very similar kinds of stories, but particular instances of local knowledges being discounted, the, the words of the residents themselves, the testimony of the residents themselves um, being discounted until there could be independent verification, right? Um, okay, so, so what we have are, so the questions about whose knowledge is or what kinds of knowledge gathering practices count are, are the kinds of things I'm asking us to think about today. Um, so, To put this in a, a a bit more academically. Uh, in a book chapter by the late environmental philosopher and ecofeminist pioneer Val Plumwood, um, a chapter called Rationalism and the Ambiguity of Science, um, Plumwood elaborates how the Western master narrative of rationality locates scientific and epistemic authority in a stance of transcendence, distance and separation, of dispassionate, dispassionate disengagement thereby producing a hierarchical, instrumentalizing relationship between the knower and the known. Uh, Although the dominant conception of rationality and knowledge holds that this purported separation and uh, affective or or, uh, emotional neutrality on the part of the researcher is not only necessary for objectivity and universality, both of which are supposedly preconditions for something called truth, and is certainly and necessarily free of any political relations, Plumwood, Plumwood notes that a closer investigation reveals that it's otherwise. And then I'm gonna give you a lengthy quote from here, um, from her, so you're just gonna have to follow along with me, I don't have it up on a PowerPoint slide. So, says Plumwood, in the absence of care and respect for what is studied, and of responsibility to those who will be affected by it, it is inevitable that the knowledge relation is constructed as one in which the known is is merely a means to the knower's ends, or the ends of power in which they, in the absence of respect and care, will come to serve. The presence of a politics is particularly clear when the item known is itself threatened for ratiogenic, ratiogenic is a word that means generated by reason, as a result of what's been learned about it. Power is what rushes into the vacuum of disengagement, the fully impartial knower can easily be one who will bend their administrative, research, and pedagogical energies to wherever the power, prestige, and funding is. Disengagement then carries a politics, although it's a paradoxical politics in which an appearance of neutrality conceals capitulation to power. So it's not simply that those who hold that our ways of knowing must be predicated on a certain sort of objectivity have it wrong, but that there's a power relationship that's produced and reinforced by the demand that true knowledge of climate change or anything else must be objective and independently verified uh, by those with no stake or personal commitment to the result. So returning to the Arctic study of the Inupiat, the researchers write about the limits of exclusively relying. On GIS data to discern what's going on. Let's see if I can find that. on the Tundra of Alaska's North Slope. So, a section on GIS here. Let's see if I can see a heading that says GIS. Let's see. I know. I'll look at my printout here. where it is. Well, we can probably pull this up in a bit, Um, because I'll just read you what's in here and you will be able to follow along. Um, So so obviously not that far into the article. Um, So I'm quoting, GIS technology is but one way of capturing, displaying, and analyzing data. And not all of the information given in interviews is geographically specific or easily translated into GIS points. For some questions or audiences, the narrative and interpretive information that is captured in narratives and videotaped interviews is more important. Yeah. Did you find it?
1: You can just find it a little below that. So scroll down. Yep,
0: yeah, just a little bit. All
1: right.
0: Yeah, there's. Uh, am I still? Should I still go down?
1: No, the, at the top you just lost it. I don't know if it's the quote, but there's a GIS there.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Hmm. Great. Great. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll find it. So try to read along, and then you can look at this. So don't don't look at this, obviously. Um, so GIS technology is but one way of capturing, displaying, analyzing data. I read that, so I'll skip over a bit. For example, as the testimony presented in the following section show, Inupiat elders' responses to questions about their landscape elicit reflections on life and livelihood that are quite compelling and instructive. And much of the very important information and analytic wisdom conveyed in the interviews is not geo-specific or locatable on a map. With the recent proliferation of projects integrating local knowledge and spatial information technologies, A significant debate has arisen about the usefulness of GIS and other technologies for indigenous communities and the tendency of such technologies to misrepresent traditional knowledge or to reproduce the values of researchers at the expense of local communities' interests. Geographers Harris and Weiner present a list of methods and approaches that help create a GIS that is community-integrated and progressive rather than reproducing existing relations of power. They argue that a GIS should be constructed with the assumption that local knowledge is valuable and expert, uh, valuable and expert, the project should broaden community access to technologies and data, and a GIS should integrate multimedia in order to maximize accessibility to community members. Now, as I said, I'm gonna return to this last point about access by community members as one of the ethical demands of rethinking our epistemologies um, in in just a bit. Um, So, Getting closer to wrapping up um, this, this sort of prepared part of my talk, and looking forward to a conversation about these things. Um, but let me return again to the perspective of Dr. Dan Wildcat. So he said that we, as a culture, as a whole, have a lot we can garner from indigenous and Native American knowledge systems. Dr. Wildcat spoke of knowledge being gained by being in the world. And I quote, he said, knowledge is experiential not necessarily experimental. It is gained through a cooperative interaction with the land, air, water. He described a view that he called indigenous realism, not romanticization, uh, that understands plants and animals not as resources but relatives, cooperating in the project of providing useful knowledges about what's going on with the planet, and also in revealing the best methods of addressing climate change. is the natural non, so now we're on to another part. So not only are we asking, um, am I asking question of whose knowledges count and whose knowledges have been excluded, suggesting that knowledges of indigenous and non-traditional knowers and experiential knowledges and direct lived knowledges need to be accounted for in our scientific responses and our political responses to global change. But now there's the suggestion that the non-human world is itself a partner in these kinds of knowing projects. So is it really a partner in knowing? Well, I'm gonna read you some words from the environmental philosopher and eco-epistemologist Christopher Preston. So this is what we do in philosophy. We have texts and we read like long quotes from we don't have a lot of bar graphs on, on uh, PowerPoints. Although I will say that the philosophy world is actually being positively influenced by uh, sciences in terms of presentations and they're getting more interesting. But I don't have one at this point, so I apologize for that. So I'm gonna to read to you then. Um, This is Grounding Knowledge, uh, Environmental Philosophy, Epistemology in Place, by Christopher Preston. And he says, a reason why this is a good time to talk about grounding knowledge has more to do with the goals of environmentalists than with contemporary intellectual trends in epistemology. As photographs from space make startlingly clear, humans are located on a deeply blue, infinitely complex, and so far, apparently unique, verdant planet that supplies the conditions and possibilities for absolutely everything we do. It is clear that, in some sense, the Earth is literally the ground for all our knowledge claims. For the vast majority of species, for the vast majority of their time, the Earth has been the place from which they know. What those same images from space have, made, have also made abundantly clear is that each and every heady debate about postmodernism and epistemology takes place against the background of the systematic impoverishment of many of those biotic systems in the face of increasing populations and consumption patterns. It is now well understood that these consumption patterns come at the loss of a come at the cost of a significant loss of the planet's cultural and biological diversity. Okay. Um, Since traditional discussions of knowledge have generally assumed that human situatedness in a physical environment is not relevant to matters of the mind, this continuing impoverishment of natural environments has rarely been considered to have any detrimental effect on thought and belief. This book challenges that traditional account. As creatures who survive only because we are situated in delicate ecological relationships with the world around us, Humans now generally recognize that we are connected on a biological level to the systems around us. Clearly, it is in our own biological interest to treat natural systems with care. I argue, that is Christopher Preston argues, that as that humans, as creatures with minds operating through ongoing and active relationships with our physical environments, are also profoundly connected at a psychological level to our historical, biological, and geographical situation on this planet. This means it is not only in our biological interest, but also in our cognitive interest to protect these connections. For it is in these contexts that the human mind operates. Okay, so even the attempt to ground and locate um, theory and philosophy, that still probably sounded rather heady. Um, What does this mean in terms of determining our ethical responses to global change? What's the relationship between our epistemologies and our ethics? Well, one of the primary tenets of environmental justice movements is that communities must be empowered to speak for themselves. That is to say that communities most affected by environmental changes should be considered the experts on what's going on, and outside researchers should conduct themselves with ethical and epistemological humility, and really listen to the residents and even the earth and its creatures itself. Technological expertise and data, et cetera, is a tool put in the service of helping to identify and address particular problems, but it's only one way, one kind of way of knowing. Others are participating, Um, other, uh, other, other participants, uh, listening to land, to the land, to elders, to long-term residents, and those who deeply care for particular places is crucial to uh, gaining knowledge as well. Knowledge that we can respond to, that we can then use to respond to. And second, uh, I've got four points here, so this is my second point. Uh, so, second, any knowledge is gained by outside scientific expertise should be given to the communities themselves to apply and deploy as they fashion their response on their own terms. And um, Catsy Cook, a Native American midwife, uh, conducted a study of Native women to determine uh, the PCB and dioxin levels in their breast milk, which is alarmingly high, as it is for all women on the planet, but Native women, and particularly women in the Arctic, because of the way that um, uh, it because of the circumpolar the wind flows and things like that, concentrating because of eating high up on the food chain, eating, eating uh, various mammals, concentrates particularly in the bodies and the breast milk, and then thus gets transferred to the children of Inuit women, native women. So she conducted a study of native women to determine the, the dioxin levels. But the first thing they did with the result was to tell the women themselves to give the result back to the community. It was drawn the information, the data, the source was drawn from the community, and the purposes and of the of the information was to give it to the community itself, and um and and. Um, They did not go and first report their findings elsewhere, nor did they tell the women based on their findings that therefore we have a conclusion you should stop breastfeeding or something like that. Um, When given the information, it was assumed that the native women were uh, able to make the best situation situated in their particular economic, cultural, and ecological context. So it's this sort of model of not having that sort of anthropology bandit model of going into communities and places and getting knowledge and then taking it elsewhere, a sort of colonial colonial epistemological model of gathering information and then going elsewhere and putting other kinds of information, but putting the knowledge that's gathered through scientific and other kinds of knowledge gathering processes to work in those places. Um, And then, so third, that was my second point. Um, Third, uh, we don't need to shy away from the idea that knowledges are political and I imagine this might uh, be a provocative point in this audience and maybe we'll talk about it I hope. So we've all seen the horrible effects of eight years of politicized science from the Bush administration on the topic of climate change scientists denying that he was politically pressured to change the results of his study. We know know and knew all along that it's become uh, screamingly clear that there's lots of politics going on with the politics of climate change and and results of uh, not the IPCC but of uh, White House and EPA kinds of uh, findings and documents. Um, So we've all seen the horrible effects of eight years of politicized science. but the most ethical response is not to make science more neutral, because it never was that in the first place, I submit to you. Why shouldn't knowledge projects, scientific and otherwise, be interested, concerned with particular points of view? If we acknowledge this, then we can really have a conversation about the ethics and the values we want to promote, and those we don't. Okay, the process through which we do this is that inexact science called democracy. And no amount of scientific expertise makes one voice any more or any less entitled to be heard in the public sphere. So, my fourth and final point here um, this is just a little bit more uh, anecdotal. Let's see if this is the case. So, I've been hearing that, that some ecologists. Uh, want to change the name of their field or their discipline because it's become too associated with something political that the ecology movement, right? That it's, ecology has come not to refer to a science or a kind of scientific inquiry, but something else like a movement, right? Well, I wanna say, why is this a problem? We don't expect medical doctors to be neutral on questions of human health, and we don't think that they are unjustifiably biased if they use their intimate and intricate and well-developed knowledges of the human body to argue for practices and uh, policies that promote the body's well-being. So why ecologists and environmental scientists should be concerned about appearing to advocate or having an advocacy position, um, I'm not sure. Unless it relates back to the idea that epistemologies are bound up with power and that currently humans have power over the rest of the Earth's inhabitants, and maybe there are forces out there that don't want us to give that up. So to conclude, I'll tell you one last story from the Varieties of Environmental Justice Conference, and this time it's from the words of Casey Camp Horanick of the Ponca Indian tribe in Oklahoma. So there were several presenters, and one of the keynote presenters was um, Dr. Kristen Schrader-Frechette, who's uh, who's, um, a very esteemed um, uh, biologist and philosopher. She has has training in both fields and an appointment in both fields at at Notre Dame. And and she works very tirelessly and uh, strongly on environmental justice issues, and she consults with many um, scientific and governmental agencies. so she presented lots of bar graphs and lots of data and, and, and lots of, to make this compelling argument that we are ethically, we are all must respond to problems of environmental injustice because we're all ethically implicated in it. But Casey Camp Hornick, um, so Kristen Treadoff had a particular kind of social location. Um, she is a white woman of German background. Um, she's a very esteemed professor at a, uh, at, a at a very recognized university. Um, as I said, she consults with government and with um, and with other kinds of scientific agencies. Um, she's very respected, taken very seriously. Um, Casey Camp Hornick does not have any of those labels and degrees after her name is really funny. What did she say? She said. Um, uh, she said, yeah, I have a degree from uh, MIT matriarch in training. I think, so that's one of the things that she said. And uh, and, the, and the BIA is in there somewhere, too, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Okay, um, so Kristen schrader forchette they got in a discussion about something, about the meaning of a particular kind of data, and Kristen schrader forchette said to the audience, she said, well, I could give you the data about this. And Casey Kampornik, she said, we live the data. So, uh, what was going on there is that Kristen Schrader-Frechette, Dr. Frechette, doctor schrader frechette was very well intentioned. But Casey Camp Hornick was calling us to remember that knowledges are lived knowledges. Yeah, they're not just in bar graphs. And they're always situated and always experienced differently. So having her, the experience of her community and her people and her life transformed into you know, sort of data points um, was, uh, I think, somewhat disturbing to uh, Casey Camp Hornig. And she was calling us to remember that these knowledges are lived knowledges and always situated and always experienced differently according to one's position in a biocultural world. So knowledges are partial and perspectival, but that doesn't make them less true. And if we pay attention to who is doing the knowing, who knows, then we just might learn something. I don't know. uh, how much time we have left here? Yeah, we've got, got some time. So okay. Okay. So we'll Is it forty-five session. after that we've had class Yeah,
3: in? I usually try to I end mean, it about twelve thirty and sort
0: of have a slot. Okay, great. So my timing worked out well. I'm just maybe fifteen minutes for Q&A. Okay. Well, what do you think? John? Okay, one uh-huh. of the things that um, you
1: know one of the points you made about the power and the funding. Uh, being a major driver, and I think that's definitely true. Um, and I'm wondering, are there any um, enlightened funding agencies that are in fact funding projects to bridge that gap and to really bring in that lived experience and really involve those local, if I can use the word, stakeholders mm-hmm. you know, people living mm-hmm. uh, in a particular area? With um, these various other approaches and various other kinds of things, like the biology, mm-hmm. um, climate change, or, yeah. or you know,
0: G I S technology, yeah.
1: have, uh-huh. scientific data. Are there mm-hmm. any um, any agencies that you know of, or any funding entities that are funding that kind of uh-huh. interface?
0: Yeah, I. I I don't have a deep and thorough knowledge, but this is one study that was um, funded by the National Science Foundation and brought together geographies oh. and environmental philosophers and And if you read okay. the text throughout here, they um, you know in, in stress the importance of the participant interviews going along with the GIS data going along with a, and, and bringing that back into the community and also and also knowledge as being sort of a community held thing rather than like so stories would get told about the shifting or the, the changes in the lakes um, which was what they were specifically going to research were particular karst something like that, I don't know um, uh, lakes that flow through where the permafrost has been melting and how that affects um, the, the structures in the community and the community. So, okay, so this is one example, and so, you know, so here's here's a figure from, uh, you know, some of the research methodology is through participant, uh, through interviews. Um, also, I did, is it Jonathan Cook? The EPA is actually, this is really interesting. I need to look into this a little bit further. Um, Jonathan Cook is the director of the EPA Native People's Affairs Bureau for um, District 6, which is covered by Dallas, and the, he and colleagues have been, and he is Native, and um, I don't know what tribe, and he and colleagues have been pushing for years to get these kinds of qualitative uh, non-quantitative factors considered in environmental impact reports that the EPA does, and and apparently there is now. I don't want to call it a pilot program, but they're actually going to try to implement this and build this into um, in the process of generating environmental impact reports. Maybe you know a little bit about it, um, and and. Um, I do, things such as the impact on the value and the cultural traditions and the heritage of the community. Um, things that, that have been left out of, excluded from environmental impact reports because they're non-quantifiable, right? They're these kinds of messy, how do you, how do you measure something like the impact on a community? But it's very real. So I think that that's going to be really interesting and I'm very excited about that. And I'm also very interested to see exactly how that's going to kind of work out in practice, how an environmental impact report has to include considerations of... Uh, of impact on the community, loss of cultural values, and, and if cultural values that are tied to being in particular places and inter- interactions with the environment in certain kinds of ways. So there's a, there's a couple of uh, examples that I can think of and, and, and hopefully and I'm sure that there are more um, coming along. But yeah, and maybe others know. Well
3: sort of going along with that, I, I guess my question is what, what's your sense of sort of where things stand today? At, in the sciences uh, in relation to this. Because I, I would think, and I think this is largely driven by look, this sort of idea of climate change and global warming that um, certainly a lot of the scientific organizations that I belong to are starting to embrace this idea that, um, that scientists do need to play a fairly active role in advocacy. Mm-hmm. Caution, you know, sort of uh, being cautious about how they do it, mm-hmm. but, um, but that it's being pushed a lot. That it's, hey, you're not, you're not supposed to be a dispassionate observer but you are actually supposed um, to you know take off your scientist hat at one point and okay. put on your advocacy hat um,
0: sometimes or they, maybe not take off the scientist scientist hat but put on the advocacy hat at the same time scientist advocate
3: yes right exactly. I and mean, is
0: that becoming okay I mean I guess um, that's my question for you is is uh, will, well, we continue. I
3: mean, well, I mean that, that, that is an interesting question because I think there is there is certainly still this epistemology of to be a scientist you not be an advocate at the same time mm-hmm. um, which I think is probably breaking down and I'd be interested to hear what, what other views on that are. But but I think that's still fairly strong that feeling that you that can't necessarily be both at the same time. Yeah. Um, so that there is this sense of taking off the hat and putting on another one. Uh-huh. uh you know not not sort of like losing your knowledge as you do so so that you're still using your scientific knowledge and advocate. But
0: now I'm speaking as an advocate right, not as that, a scientist.
3: Exactly making that clear break Saying you know now I'm not talking with the scientists, but oh. but I think and, and largely because of sort of the politic politicization of of science with this previous White House, with the idea that there is you know with climate change and, and hey you know we really need to do something, that there is this push with a lot of organizations to mm-hmm. play, maybe uh, you know, cautious but play a role in advocacy. Yeah. And and sort of how you how you see if, if you're I don't know sort of the evolution of this over time if you do see that. And if there's a big difference today. Well, I think
0: you and your colleagues and you know and, and students could, uh, in the sciences could speak more to this than me because those aren't the communities that I'm directly involved in. But I, I do know that there is this perception all of the things that you're just saying that if you if you advocate you're not as good of a scientist or that's misusing science or that it's not to be taken seriously and if, there's a sh- if there is a, a shift occurring, I, I applaud that, I think that's good. I mean we do wrestle with it in all kinds of disciplines and philosophy as well, this idea that that you have like pure disinterested knowledge or study of a thing. But, um, but feminist and environmental perspectives say that that you're ev- even claiming that there ought to be neutrality, even saying that true knowledge should not advocate for something or is not meaningful, what that does—that's actually an interested position. That's actually a political position. That what it does is reinforces a status quo. So that's actually coming out in favor of the status quo, usually. So, but then it's concealed under this like idea that it's objective and neutral. So the argument is: is look, why not be very upfront and direct about the kinds of political stances we're taking? So that then we can talk about whether this is good or this is not good. What you know? What are the values? Whose whose positions? Whose interests? Whose standard? Whose whose ways of affairs are being reinforced by this, and who's wouldn't, and then we can then we have to wrangle with it as a culture, as a collective, as a people, as a global people, or in particular communities. Um, I don't know, do others want to discuss uh, say about the, the sort of status of interested science?
1: Well, I was my perspective is that the risk for scientists of getting too involved in advocacy is that there's a difference between. Uh, uh, advocating the conclusions that are supported by analysis Mm -hmm. as opposed to selective use of data. Okay. And those are two very different things, Mm -hmm. and the general public doesn't know the difference Uh between those two things. Uh So what's been going on for eight years is ignoring a lot of data and selectively cherry picking other data that happen to fit the priorities of the people in power. And so people think that there are no other data. And so it's... Not most scientists would think it's a slippery slope to counter that by going to the opposite extreme, uh-huh. which is to cherry pick the data on the other side uh-huh, and sure. pretend that the data that the conclusions are uh-huh. much simpler than they really are. Uh-huh. That's not being waffly and, and promoting the status quo. It's wanting to doing preserve ones, the integrity. of what scientists that. do in terms of evaluating the data dispassionately, in the sense that you base your conclusions on what the data tell you, not on what you want to be true and you just find data that support your position.
0: Yeah, no. Point well taken. Yeah. And
1: I'll... I think uh, when President Obama was talking about the stem cell decision, he was trying to deal with that, that we'll base decisions on whatever the science says, whether it fits our personal you know, or, or our democratic or whatever philosophy or not. but there's the ethical dimension that also has to be taken into consideration. So, you know, there's sort of a science advocacy, but there's also an ethical advocacy that then have to kind of tussle with each other mm-hmm. before final decision is made. So there's an advocacy for science itself, which is sort of part of what he was saying. Right. Mm-hmm. And but then there's but it's not that's not the whole story. Yeah. That there has to be something bigger than that that's considering Know, society and values and things to that, yeah. which is more of a political, uh, some combination of political and philosophical. No, and
0: that's right. So the, so the ethical... Um positions, the values that people hold that are represented by different groups are part of the debate, as is the science. So I agree that saying that this needs to just be based on the science is is itself advocating for science as being the only kind of consideration. And I think that's absolutely right, saying that there, there are people who, there are those who have um, very good positions, very good ethical or moral or value-based reasons to either agree or disagree with a particular kind of practice, stem cell research or um, recently the release of Plan B for um, being sold over the counter to um, 17-year-olds, and then they say that you know this this decision was was based ex- exclusively on this. Ignored the science of it, and it's true. It's disingenuous to say, oh well, the reason why we're withholding this from 17-year-olds is because we're concerned about their health. When the science doesn't show that, that's a, that's a disingenuous and a misuse of science. And as you say, that's cherry picking data and maybe even it just grossly distorting the data. But if you want to just be upfront and say what this debate is really all about is whether or not we think 17-year-olds should be able to have access to um, um, to emergency contraception and what that means for, about our society values about um, about teenage sexuality and things like that. That's the discussion we need to be having, and that just needs to be part. And that can be part of policy decisions because that's what those are ethical conclusions we need to come to as a society. But to just say, oh, you know, the science says or does not say that it's okay or not okay, is kind of missing the point. I wanted to return to something you said, um, Bob, about um, and the public doesn't know the difference. Like to the problem with charity, you know that. The, the, the difficulty, there's a difference between advocating for the conclusion that your science, that your data leads you to versus cherry picking data and then arguing for a conclusion and the public doesn't know the difference, and so you want to preserve the integrity of science. I concur, but the sol- solution to that, of course, is it shows that then what we need is a scientifically literate population. <laughs>
1: <Very nice>.
0: and, <laughs> you know, so because these are still democratic issues and issues for the public sphere, so we have to be able to say, wait a minute, you know, like what's going on in you know with, with climate change We're data start, or something you know, like that. It would be that.
1: nice to start with a scientifically literate media, but mm-hmm. we don't have that. Okay. And so no. we don't, we challenge.
0: Yeah, I might say let's skip the media since the media is so <laughs> corporate controlled, and media has particular interests and points of view. And so again, what scientists, what scientific experts get displayed, who gets to voice the official point of view, those are all political decisions. So again, it's not that we need to get away from the politics; it's that we need to be more transparent about the politics, and then an, an educated and democratically involved population can get involved in the debates. So yeah, and and then so then hopefully it'll be more glaringly obvious when particular. Or, um facts or data is being cherry picked to support a certain con- kind of conclusion. There is of
1: course the ethics of pseudoscience. The <laughs> there's the whole the ethical aspect of lying about the information.
0: Uh-huh. So yeah. Well, that The way.
1: ethics about whose whose points of view do we incorporate, but uh-huh. there's also the the issue about integrity in general, not mm-hmm. just scientific integrity but, but
0: yeah, integrity about the, your methodology and processes. I mean, I think peer review is one of the best and most rigorous ways to um, to produce knowledge and to get it through from those, those kinds of communities and helping people to understand that and understand how that process works and getting people involved in it too. So considering the, these some of the peers that are reviewing the data and the information, who are you know, so, so a wide variety of kinds of communities and voices and perspectives. So from, this, from the environmental science students, what do you see your role as environmental scientists what whatever kinds of uses you're gonna put environmental science to? What's the role of somebody with, a, with an education in environmental science in talking about um, climate change or any other kind of environmental issue? Do you have an advocacy obligation? Is it okay for you to do advocacy? Do you have to do advocacy? Is it not okay for you to do advocacy? You're going to say something. You're thinking about it.
4: Uh, Not actually an environmental science student, but it's something of interest to me. I don't know that much about it, and I think it's important for people who do. I know I've reached out to friends to be like, hey, can you explain this to me? Because it, it does affect all of us, and not enough people understand it. So if I mean I guess the role of other students would be to kind of maybe explain things, and I know just listening to things that do get kind of esoteric in science talk um, that I might get lost in. Um, if there's kind of a some kind of way for people to just present things like clearly and more simply for I guess the rest of the population, because you don't see that like in the media, or you really have to like just find environmental science. Journals and things, and I might not be
0: able to get through that and understand it all. Yeah, so environmental scientists, some can be interpreters Mm -hmm. in ways to explain how it works and to translate those kinds of knowledges into so they can be debated in the public sphere without everybody having to go to the science journals. Uh huh. Okay. Okay, yeah. I think
2: also as as the media has kind of picked up on climate change, and there's so many things out about, you know, green living. (coughs) In their lifestyles that you know some of them are uninformed decisions and they're coming from you know the wrong place and, and you know some people might be advocating for nuclear power but they they don't understand the waste involved in that and things like that so I think um, just personally for me listening to other people kind of have discussions about what they've seen on television and read in the newspaper they might not understand the full implications of certain actions Know, how to weigh them out and make lifestyle
0: decisions or political decisions and things like that. So, so some of the role for somebody with training in environmental science or some education in it is to help to sort out what the um, consequences of some kind of choices are? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot
2: of the, the hype lately has been slightly uninformed or maybe some people are focusing on, on certain things that that it has a greater impact than it does, or you know, I think that it can be slightly skewed. Not that all the attention is a bad thing, mm-hmm. but um, I just, I just know that there have been some instances where I've been having conversations with people, and they don't really understand either the full implications or the consequences, or how things actually affect ecosystems or systems in general. Uh-huh. Yeah,
0: right, and that's very obvious when you. People say, "How can there be global warming when it snowed in um, Georgia like it did a couple of weeks ago?" You know, like how, you know, and, and saying, "Well, this is why it's climate change, and this is actually how the model works." So, being able to actually explain those kinds of things and, and have a role in making sense—I mean, these are complex phenomena, com- complex events—and science and scientific epistemologies have a really important role to play in understanding and and getting those ideas out there but some of it is are things that we have to do as a culture we have to be able to embrace uncertainty and still move ahead in the face of uncertainty and um, and also um, to be able to just talk about the ethical implications of things and realize that these these kind of come down to values considerations and and so if we just say whatever the scientists say, is what we should do is in itself investing, saying that a particular kind of knowledge or a particular kind of way of, of thinking gives you the gives you the, the ethically or, or morally correct answer. And it's, so science is a tool, one kind of tool among many, just as within science itself, there are different kinds of tools and different kinds of knowledges for information. Sort of uh, in the quote you're reading from the
3: book on this, um, the idea that the non-human world is is very important for our cognition, for our ways of thinking. Um, And to sort of take two extremes, you have the child growing up in a a native village who's got very close ties to to the land, to the non-human aspects of the world, versus a kid growing up in Manhattan who's on the cell phone 10 hours a day. Um, and, And obviously there's a lot in between but sort of what is that, you know, this is sort of maybe a kid of worms, but what does that do to thinking? I mean, the, in, in terms mm-hmm. of in terms of our cognition, what is that? Be, because the child on the cell phone also sees you know the picture of Earth from the moon, you right. know, the moonrise picture, yeah. which I think um, in a lot of ways kind of revolutionized it, it, uh, you know, our ways of, of thinking about the Earth as one system and this whole this concept. You know, maybe this kid takes. The environmental science class or environmental ethics, and so maybe has a more global way of thinking about things, but is much less directly connected to the land. Uh-huh. What's, I yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I just sort well, of I mean thoughts on
0: that. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement with, with Preston that when we, when we eliminate, reduce biodiversity, or don't have. Inter- have very limited kinds of interactions, and interactions are uh, with a really technologized environment that it structures our thinking in certain kinds of ways, and it, and it truncates our thinking. So, so biologically diverse and rich environments, and and constant lived interaction with them, I think creates ways of like literally neural pathways or cognitive path. I don't know. I don't want to say neural pathways in neuroscience. I'm not going to say it actually grows your dend- dendrites because I don't know whether or not it does. But and and actually, there is some evidence in here that this book cites about about how that happens on a biological level. But I think certainly that um, cognitive pathways, possibilities, um, understandings are opened or foreclosed by the kinds of interactions. Now, I don't want to say that I don't want to privilege. so therefore you, you have to be Native American or you have to live on the land or something like that in order to think creatively and openly about ecological problems and have a rich understanding of the environment. I think you can do that in urban spaces. I also think that um, the environment is everywhere and we don't want to just say that the environment is out there and that cities are not environments, but but um, how we think about it and the, and the the, the, just the notion of diversity. Like, why is biodiversity good? Why do we why do we advocate for biodiversity? Because when you have biodiversity, you have many more sorts of options. You have you know you have other kinds of solutions. And then there's also something about diversity that seems to be intrinsically good because it's interesting, because it's you know it's 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 creative, it's it's proliferative, and those seem to be in those seem to be biological, ecological goods, in the, for their own sake. Um, both on a practical level but then we lose something about what it just means to be beings in the world when there are less of the other kinds of beings and I think the same kind of thing is true with um, kinds of environments so if all you're doing is being on the cell phone and in the we and you know in, in inside spaces your ex- your experience your ability to care about places and to think creatively about environments is going to be truncated just from, just from loss of experience that's my view I don't know what do you think
3: yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's you know sort of a, a can of worms. I definitely, you know, it, it, it seems like there's a that, that lack of connection for kids, for a lot of kids growing up, I think is, I mean, for me, sort of troubling. That you know, there's there's always there's always sort of an electronic gadget around, um, but I don't know. I mean, because on the flip side, I would say you know if you if you visit Manhattan, you know, the amount of kids there are calling themselves environmentalists say will probably be fairly high and mm-hmm. probably fairly knowledgeable. About, don't know, but um, you know they're aware uh, of a lot of these issues really guess like not, not necessarily scientifically literate but they but they mm-hmm. are aware of it. So I don't know. I'm just kinda I am yeah, just kind of i
0: curious. I think the key might be li- lived interaction. And so you can ha- definitely have a live interaction with the natural and cultural environments in urban spaces. But that sort of an, a mindfulness and awareness and a, a, conscious, a conscious living invo- So nowadays, kids are in cities and, and everywhere are getting lots of kinds of environmental education that may, they weren't in a previous generation, definitely. Um, I mean, those who, we just went to the Academy of Natural Sciences and we saw lots of what appear to be school children from you know, various boroughs, non-privileged boroughs and places in New York City. And just that, just that kind of like thinking, but you, live, you live on a planet or you live on a place on a planet and here's some farmers, the, the turn to um, urban gardening and urban agriculture and sustainable agriculture and community gardening and things like that as ways of, of getting people, of kids and people of all generations and communities to interact with each other in the community and interact with the, um, the natural environment that's in their space and seeing the natural and cultural as not being so separated. So... It, I think it's not just where you live, or whether you have electronic gadgets, but the sort of, you know, if, you, if you're just behind your cell phone and never outside of the apartment or the, you know, the subway, then that's one kind of thing. So because people in rural areas can can also have a distance relationship from the natural world too. Yeah, sure. So so that's where the you know the the richness of the physical environment, but also being there with the stories and with the um, the kinds of interactions that, that, that make it part of your cognitive processes, your thinking process, I think is important for that.
1: The unity of people within conservation biology-related and areas who uh-huh. are interested in that issue of how biological diversity affects the way we think about the world. Uh, our mental medal winner from a couple of years ago, Kathy uh-huh. uh, uh, Meg, uh-huh. one of her uh, programs is No Child Left Indoors. Uh-huh. You know, so, I like that. Uh, she's a good representative of the appreciation that, uh, you know, exposing kids to the natural world and, and what it means to their cognitive development, mm-hmm. uh, there are a lot of people writing about that. E.O. Wilson and mm-hmm. a lot of other people have addressed those kinds of issues. So, yeah.
0: And then there's a popular book called, what is it, Last Child in the Woods by <coughs> Wood or something like almost that. Almost any I would
1: conservation biology textbook, even a very introductory textbook will touch on that issue. Uh-huh. So it's, it's in there. Yeah. Um, the other reaction I had to some of what you were uh, touching on, and this goes back to Dr. Rogier's lecture, was about um, I think there's a, a little bit of a risk of um, painting too broad a brush about the value of resident experience, because I think it's important to be aware of the fact that. It's one thing for a community that's been resident in a place for a long, long time, where many generations of people have a relationship to the, the land and the organisms of an area. But there's are so many places around the world where that's not true anymore. Mm-hmm. So just because there are people there who are not white Anglo-Saxon folks doesn't mean that their sense of what's important and what's true is well grounded Mm -hmm. uh, because there's so much movement and change that uh, so people may there may be a community in a place that's relying on the land but they've only been doing it for one generation Mm -hmm. Uh, so in latin america we see that a lot of uh, communities that think they know what's going on but they really have no clue because they've Mm -hmm. been there for 50 years that's
0: kinda of scary. Yes. We have to be careful not to romanticize or idealize any particular kind of people and say there's automatically, you know, a, a deep and lived knowledge. Women have a deep and lived knowledge of land or indigenous you know, Native Americans. It's not by virtue of being a woman or being a mother or being indigenous, but it has to do with those stories and those lived relationships. And do they go back, you know, generations and and how are the stories are the stories or the knowledge is passed on have they been passed on in particular kinds of ways
4: environment and are maybe even involved in a lot of the environmental uh that are happening up there. but at the same time there are also very distinct examples of people that um, are from the native community but are now enjoying kind of the privileges that come along with um development or whatever, and so then when they have uh, interactions with us, and we tell them what we're doing, um, kind of trying to make them more aware of the effect that perhaps development Rochelle is having, on like the like, this there. They just don't care, and they don't see why they're there. And they, you know, they'd rather have a mall than have people up there, mm-hmm. and then that, that's kind of amazing to me, and also kind of problematic in that. The ideas that we're talking about. I definitely think we that I we're thinking about better experience in their knowledge at the same time of bias. And I think that's a
0: big problem. Is there a generational difference between those who want malls um, and
4: uh, def- definitely the elders are not Working with
0: Shell. Yeah, and that's another. That was my next question: is Is there an economic incentive, or are they being employed by Shell and things like that? Yeah. So right, and so it, it's it's warning against looking even at cultures and groups as hegemonically having the same kind of position or, or perspective, and that. And they, there are debates that are going to be internal to communities and need to happen. But some of, but some of what it sounds like happening is happening is we need to at least look at the role of the the power of dominant American mass consumer culture in shaping the value system. So I'm not saying that those young people don't really have those values. I'm not going to say those aren't really your values. Those are fake values. Those are you know those are their values. But values are malleable. Values and values change and shift in conversation. So in conversation and consideration. And so if you know you're getting lots of TV and you're getting all these kinds of messages everywhere that this is how you become this is how you get modern, this is what it means to have something. You're not anybody if you don't have, you know like whatever kind of genes, you know gap genes or whatever. Then it, it's understandable Or and, and especially also if your livelihood is there. So hopefully there would be so one of the things you can do is create spaces for other kinds of converse, other kinds of value systems to get to come out in those cultures. Maybe some come from the culture. Maybe some, maybe some don't come from that culture, but, you, but some come from researchers like yourself, who say, have you thought about what this is doing to the biodiversity? Is that something that's important to you? I mean, and again, this is the role of science education, too, I mean, thinking about these kinds of things, so. Yeah, so there are tensions, and there aren't uniform ways of thinking, but that's why it's all gotta be put out there in the public sphere, so we can wrangle about the <coughs> differences. And that's where philosophers come in, or those with philosophical training. I should say those with training in philosophy, not just professional. Yeah, well we should wrap things
3: up. Okay. Okay. To you this. Oh. Thank you very much for taking time.